1: A little bit more of me.
0: So, oh, let's see if you can see me. Yeah. My guest today is Professor Stephanie Schmidt-Gohe, who's Professor of Economics at Columbia University. She's also a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome, Stephanie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. So thanks for doing this. So I, I want to uh, talk about your, um, I guess the, the paper that you had written, a couple of papers you written with uh, Martin uh, Uribe, uh, and your talk and your research around the neo-fisher effect and exiting the liquidity trap. Um, as I mentioned, Stephanie, we uh, we probably shared uh, a common time in Hyde Park a long time ago, but I had small doses of macroeconomics when you were doing real stuff, and uh, most of that stuff has gone away. So I need a booster shot on macroeconomics. <laughs> uh, so before we get into the neo Fisher effect, um, could you talk a bit about what is what the Fisher effect is originally?
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, I would be happy to. So I think especially um, since there is, I think different people have different opinions about it. So let me be very clear. So the we are thinking about monetary policy. So that what I'm talking about has to do with monetary economics. And the Fisher effect is is concerned with the idea that Is there a systematic relationship between the nominal interest rate, say the the federal funds rate or the treasury rate, some type of normal interest rate, and the level of inflation? And so there's this idea in economics, which is called the Fisher Effect, and it's a long-run concept, where people have, through empirical work, pretty much uncontroversially established, that there's this very simple relationship that the nominal interest rate is equal to the real interest rate plus expected inflation. That's called the Fisher equation. Um, wait a second. I constantly see you freezing. I don't know if this is me or you. Um,
0: you see me freezing. Um,
1: like, like I cannot see that the video that arrives on your end is right. So. Um,
0: Mm.
1: Do you do you also have this connectivity issue or not?
0: I don't. Um, I can see you. Okay. Back. Yeah. I think, I think.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. So let's just make this. If you feel that you cannot see me well, let me know if it freezes. Okay. So let me go back to the Fisher effect. It's the idea that there's a relationship between the normal interest rate the real interest rate and expected inflation. And what most people believe is that in the long run, so what do I mean by long run, maybe over of periods over 30, 40 years, monetary policy cannot do much to affect the real interest rate in an economy. So if over long periods of time, the normal interest rate is very high, this will also result in the inflation rate being really high so suppose you the is four percent and one country picks the normal interest rate to six percent that country is going to have a two percent inflation rate but another country also has this real interest rate of four percent but they pick a normal interest rate of ten percent they will have six percent inflation so in the long run there's a one-to-one relationship for every percentage points higher normal interest rates you have one percentage points higher inflation in the long run And so this one for one movement between normal interest rates and inflation in the long run, that's called the long run Fisher effect. And people in general have accepted that. That's not very controversial. And with it goes the idea that the real interest rate in the long run, not in the short run, but in the long run is really not affected by monetary policy. So the general idea is always that monetary policy might be very powerful in the short run, but not in the long run if we take the long run to be episodes of 30 years or more. So that is why the literature on the Neo-Fisher effect, they can't just talk about the Fisher effect, they put the word Neo in front, because they are interested in a very specific question. And then I tell you why they got interested in that specific question. But the specific question they're interested in is that suppose the central bank raises The normal interest rate permanently. So let's start with an example. Let's go to Switzerland. They have the the policy rate in Switzerland is minus half a percent, so minus 50 basis points. And so so maybe you would think a more normal level is plus 2%. So you would think that if she should go, at least in expectations, if they go to plus 2%, that's a permanent move. You wouldn't think, oh, yeah. Very briefly, they're going to put the foot into the water and see how 2% is, and then they go back to the un, unusual situation of minus 50 basis points, right? So we would think that a normalization of interest rates from negative interest rates that a bunch of central banks have to something like more normal, that's why it's called normalization, 2% is a permanent move.
0: Okay, so that, that's, Wait, because, that's because they're moving from minus 0.5 to 2 Mm-hmm. it's a big move and so people and the markets would expect this to be sort of some sort of a systemic change that they're going to continue right
1: yeah oh but they can i'm totally fine with doing this in very gradual steps so maybe your audience who follows monetary policy they know that the typical central bank never does anything drastic they typically go in little steps, often 25 basis points up very slowly. But if you hear them discussing the reasons, so let's give some context. In 2008, much of the world fell into a financial crisis. Most central banks responded by putting the normal interest rate at zero and then some of them, like if I stick with Switzerland or the European Union, they went to negative rates, right? And there was some fundamental shock and that was the financial crisis and i think everyone agrees probably that it was the right thing to do this and so what the neo-fisherian idea which i am still beginning to define we'll get to the definition is what happened after the maybe five years say 2013 after probably the initial impulse that gave rise to the financial crisis should have worked its way through the economy and some rigidities, say normal rigidities, should have been worked themselves out. Many central banks in the world still found them with zero interest rates or negative interest rates, and they were thinking, okay, let's go back to normal, and what were the considerations they had why they might have been held back going back to normal? Maybe they thought, oh yeah, another tremendous negative shock arrived which justifies that we stay at minus half a percent but for many countries that was not the case there was no other major negative shock so the natural thing would have been for normal interest rates to go back to say plus two percent and the concern that many central bankers have and many economists also have is that if you do this move it's going to be sort of a permanent move because you don't think you're going to quickly go back to minus half a percent so but the fear is that raising rates always has a depressive effect on prices, so it would be deflationary, and raising rates would raise the real rates and therefore would lower economic activity. So if you're a central banker and you're considering normalizing, and these are your prospects that you think about, wow, if I raise the, the interest rates now normalize, I'm gonna push inflation further down and I'm going to push aggregate activity down, that's not a very it's interesting really or interesting. attractive, very attractive move to make, right? But this logic, so what the neo-fisherians are trying to say is that such a policy move would would be more of a permanent nature because it's going back to normal. and we sort of expect to be in normal. Yes, sometimes we're going to have a positive shock, sometimes a negative shock, but we're expecting to be most of the time in normal, right? So all the intuition that people have about raising rates comes from these transitory increases in interest rates that are expected to be just transitory and last maybe one year. But normalization of policy rates is something that should be at least be expected to be permanent will expose not be permanent because we might get a positive shock or negative shock, but should be expected to be permanent. And most people come to this this experiment or this action of a permanent change with the intuition from the transitory ones. So what the Neo-Fisherians were saying or arguing is that within theoretical models, as well as in data, if we go to episodes in which there's a permanent increase in the normal interest rate, so that's very important, not any increase in the normal interest rate, but a permanent one doesn't have the same effects as a transitory one. In particular, a permanent tightening by the central bank is going to be associated with higher inflation rather than deflation. There's gonna be expansionary, Um, and not recessionary. And the the reason is why this happens mechanically in the data, is if you look at episodes where they raised rates permanently, so there was a permanent increase in, in central bank interest rates, inflation adjusts immediately and adjusts more than the normal interest rate, so that the real interest rate, which is defined as the difference between the normal interest rate and inflation, actually falls. And when the real interest rate is low, then firms find it very easy to invest and aggregate activity should be very high. Aggregate demand should be high and that has a positive effect on the economy.
0: So let- Let let me see if I get the intuition behind this, uh, Stephanie. mm -hmm. Um, A transitory uh, increase in uh, nominal interest rate reduces activity and and that is true in any case, but what you're arguing is that if the change is permanent, it, it that is it's not the case that it's going to dampen activity. So, so I'm wondering what the mechanism is. So is it that you know? So there has to be some sort of a statement from the central bank saying, "Hey, the shock is over. We are going back to two percent, wherever they want to be, whatever they want to say." And we're going to slowly get there, you know, in increments of 0.25 or whatever the case may be. So there has to be some sort of a statement letting the markets know that we're retracing back to normal. And it, is is it the signal that that actually sort of gets them going, or, or something else?
1: Okay. So here is is the the key question is why. Let me go back a little bit. So, uh, so what everything you say, I agree with and is right. And, and, and I think you understood exactly correctly wh- what I said. So here's why people started to thinking about that. The logic or why this came up is Japan started in 1995 with a country that had a big financial crisis. The central bank responded and put the normal interest rates very close to zero from 95, and then they waited and waited and said, look, we have an extremely expansionary stance. We put the normal interest rates as low as we can. And our theory basically tells us that if we are so expansionary and we keep them there, 2000 comes, 2001, 2003, so eight years, right? So obviously the initial shock has to have worked out itself through the system. The things that the central bank can help in the short run with, like normal rigidities or something, have to, you know, those rigidities have been worked out. So they were all waiting for this enormous moment that inflation in Japan becomes big because it was such an easy stand. So the usual logic is easy monetary policy is very helpful when demand is low. But after a bunch of years, if you keep the easy stands, it has to be inflationary. And we didn't see that. We didn't see that at all. In Japan, inflation came in at minus one, minus half a percent. And formally or informally, they had an inflation target of 2%. And they said, look, we are doing everything we can. We have the normal interest. Rate. We have the normal interest. Rate. We can say, oh, people must say this is it. This is the new normal. We are going to be at zero rates. With zero rates, what we are associated with is... An inflation rate of minus half a percent and that's what we see and there's no there's no puzzle so we can go back to the usual Fisher equation that we say the normal interest rate is zero the real interest rate is say half a percent then inflation has to be minus half a percent and that all makes sense so the question is how come our usual way of thinking about things of being really accommodative should generate inflation and we didn't see that right and so there comes the self-fulfilling prophecy idea comes in. So I'm also going to step back maybe a little bit and say what was the big change in monetary policy over the last 30 years. Um, The regime shifted with New Zealand in 1990 to something called inflation targeting in which central banks became just much more simple and more to the point. They said we care about the inflation rate we are pretty optimistic that we can control that inflation is under the control of the central bank and it's not something that is somehow determined in an obstruse way and we are going to be very clear in communicating about it we as a central bank we believe we can control the inflation rate this is our target say two percent many central banks around the world have that here's how we are going to go about of doing this and so this revolution of inflation targeting has taken not only rich countries, has taken over the central banks in rich countries, but also central banks in many emerging market economies, and maybe even some poor countries. And they don't all have the same inflation target of 2%. Some emerging markets have maybe a little bit higher inflation target, but it's not that they say our inflation target is 18. No, no, it's like 3% or 4%. And so the, the result of that movement was, it was a great success in the following sense. Inflation has become much more volat- much less volatile and the average inflation rate has become much lower. But for a central bank, it came with another, I think, surprising problem. If you typically ask those central banks, you know, how is inflation targeting working for you? How are things going? Most central banks were undershooting that target. So especially since 2008, if you talk to... Central bankers, and you just look at how is the inflation performance. You go to South Korea and European countries in the US, many countries say, Oh, no, actually, you know, we're doing very well, but for some reason, inflation is below our target. And, and that, so, so one of the things we did in a paper, so Martin Uribe and Jess Ben Habib, we wrote a paper in 2001, 20 years ago called the Perils of Taylor Rules, in which we showed that this mechanism of saying, if my inflation rate is above my inflation target, I raise the normal rate, and if my inflation rate is below my inflation target, I lower the normal interest rate. That's the usual mechanism, that's called the Taylor Rule. That thing at some point hits a lower bound because the zero normal interest rate is a bound. If you want, I explain why, but suppose I just take it as given. And What we showed is that there, once you hit zero it could be that long-run inflation expectations become unanchored people it is rational to think that it's no longer two percent but instead it is maybe a very slight deflation so it's not this story of becoming bigger and bigger and bigger deflation no no it's just like what you saw in japan it is rational for them to think we are going to be at minus the real interest rate if the real interest rate on safe assets is just half a percent it's rational to believe that the the inflation rate will be just slightly negative. And so this is what we have seen.
0: So are you sort of stuck in some sort of a local minimum? So this, this assumes that there is a zero lower bound. yeah at excess. But there is no technical reason it has to excess, right? Banks could charge. I think in Switzerland they are charging negative interest rates to uh, to retail i don't know uh, it's yes forms, yes right? so okay so this has to exist right for this uh, this sort of situation to to happen yes
1: yeah, so let's first go step by step and explain why it makes sense that a lower bound exists let's first go to a super simple economy without banks and where there is cash so there is cash what is the nominal interest rate on a 100 dollar bill if you don't, by mistake, put it in your pocket into the laundry machine, you destroy it. $100 bills today, if you don't damage it, is tomorrow also a $100 bill. So the money itself has a normal interest rate of zero. Because you have $100 today, you get $100 tomorrow. So suppose now the central bank in a world where there are just $100 bills were to say, oh, the interest rate is minus half a percent what would you do? You would say, oh, this is great. I'm going to borrow $100,000 from the central bank. Since the interest rate is minus half a percentage point, I only have to pay back 9950,000 $9, dollars right? And so I pocket the $50,000 different. And that's a pure profit for me. So I would run to the central bank and would not say, give me a loan of 100,000, I would say, give me unlimited amounts. So in a very simple economy with only cash, because the physical aspect of money is like this, that a $100 bill tomorrow is the same as a $100 bill today, you have the lower bound. Because otherwise you would have an arbitrage opportunity and it's impossible for the central bank to satisfy the demand for loans at minus 50 basis points. right? But as you point out, in reality, we do see negative rates. So, why do we see negative rates? Because it is not that convenient to have all your cash, all your money in cash, right? We want to have the money in a deposit with the central bank or something. But suppose the central bank were to charge interest rates, let's go a little bit crazy, of minus 10%, right? So, suppose it wouldn't be minus half a percent, but we go to minus 10%. At that point, People do these type of calculations. They say, "Oh, suppose we have a little bit of safe vault storage. How much would it cost us to do this, and how much would it cost us to make transactions in this, in actual cash?" And so there are people who make estimates that, basically, before this arbitrage opportunity arises, maybe two percent would be the transaction cost the most. So there, there is this, not zero, but maybe minus two percent. So that is why there is a lower bound. So
0: so even if even if it's not zero, it yeah. has to be close to zero because nobody's going to pay the bank a bunch of mm-hmm. money to keep the money there. Yeah. So, so this has implications for emerging economies like, for example, India, for example, which is mm-hmm. a ninety-eight percent cash economy, that that zero zero um, lower bound is 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 really rigid. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing beyond that because everybody's transacting in cash in the whole economy.
1: Exactly. You know, there are sometimes when when people wanted to get around it, there were some episodes in history where they said, oh, the bill is going to have some text on it and say it has a negative coupon. And even though this is a hundred unit bill, at this date, it becomes a bill with only 99 units. But that is very impractical and really doesn't has never existed so so because of this zero lower bound what you can show is this taylor rule type of behavior and that's what we showed in this paper called the perils of taylor rules with jess ben habib and martin Uribe. we showed that this simple behavior of saying if inflation is too higher than our target we raise rates if inflation is lower than our target we lower rates since you cannot keep lowering and lowering them because you're going to hit the zero lower bound or minus 1%, whatever is the effective lower bound, it, you can have multiple equilibria. And you, it makes perfect sense for people to expect to be at the zero lower bound forever, like in Japan. It may, You can take that theory and say, okay, why do we see in Japan 25 years of zero normal interest rates and we don't see inflation going up? Instead, inflation has settled in nicely at minus half a percent is because that's, that's consistent with inflation expectations of minus half a percent. So that's it. So that is the point that you can have this multiplicity and that multiplicity did, people didn't, prior to 1990 or something people didn't think about that because monetary policy was not done in this framework of inflation targeting and this very clean way of using a Taylor rule. So, so that I think is, is one of the insights. But so,
0: why is Japan still there if if the neo official effect is true, Stephanie? No, oh. uh, this is a clear prescription for the Japanese uh, monetary authorities, right?
1: Yes, but you know what has happened in Japan. That's our take on on that. Is they sometimes said, okay, we think the economy. No, they always said, we are gonna get back to normal if we see some inflation and they wait, and wait, and wait to see some inflation. And if the perils of Taylor rule theory is right, they can wait, and there will never be any inflation. So sometimes they saw a little bit of inflation, and they started tightening. And then, suppose everybody thinks that tightening is transitory and not permanent. You're gonna have that it's contractionary. And they say, woo, we we tighten and look. Right away, we we had a contraction, and so they let it go. So it's a little bit like Mr. Makoba, who keeps hoping something will come up, something will come up, and we are gonna not do anything until we see inflation.
0: So, so for it to work, the central bank has to say we are going to X percent above zero. Mm-hmm. We're going to commit to that, mm-hmm. and here's a schedule by which we are going to get there. Right? It, it has yes. to be sort of a a, a um, An announcement by central bank that is going to be the policy.
1: So, yeah I, go ahead, yeah, I think if you look at the US, 2008, there was a fundamental shock. The US did what many central banks did and what makes perfect sense they lowered the interest rate to zero. And then, um, officially, the recession in the United States was over in 2009, but then we had the debt crisis in Europe in, in 2011, right? But once that was over, the U.S. lingered a little bit, in my opinion, at the zero rates, waiting and waiting and waiting for inflation to come up. And then in 2005, the U.S. decided to normalize and said, look, we think we are now seven years post the initial blow of the financial crisis, you know, Um, We have been, at that point, they had been for six years at zero rates, even though we were, quote-unquote, an expansion, and they started to normalize. And when they normalized, immediately inflation came up. So if you look at the picture of inflation, the inflection point of inflation itself happens to coincide with the moment that the Fed tightens in December 2015. Of course, you can interpret that data in two ways. You can say they saw inflation coming, so they tightened, and so you see them. Or you can see it in a causal way that a neo-fisherian would interpret it, say, okay, this was the signal that we normalize, meaning we are going permanently to normal levels of the normal interest rate and zero being not normal, maybe 2% being normal. And then you would see immediately that the, there's a reinflation of the economy. So let me repeat something I said at the beginning neo do not think that any type of raising of the nominal interest rate has to bring inflation up. No, no, it has to be, as you said, a commitment that this is expected to be not transitory, that this is expected to be sort of permanent.
0: Yeah, I want to push on one direction. I don't know much about this, but just to get your your perspective on this. Um, So labor and the rigidity of wages is sort of an important aspect here um, in the market you know we continuously drive down the human resource aspect of products right we have artificial intelligence the marginal cost of production for the next unit is going to be nearly zero in a software robotics world so we won't we won't have labor let's say in the future and so wages become sort of a um, it won't be a factor in, in the economics. In which case, inflation is not, a, not not necessarily a sign of the economy expanding. In some ways, um, would you would you think would you think that way or no?
1: Okay, so I think the fact that technological progress implies that a lot of things that where done by humans can no longer be done by humans doesn't necessarily mean that the wage goes down. So let's go back to the plow. We started with a plow with one person behind an ox, right? And then, I mean, have you ever seen a modern harvesting machine or a modern plow? They look bigger like a war tank, right? And so they go 24 hours with a GPS system over not minding whose land it is because everybody contracted or... And so, did that mean that the wage rate fell and people don't make any money anymore? No. It is true that there's a big displacement of labor, and that, until that displacement is worked out, can be very hard on the people who are being displaced. But overall, we have seen that, on average, the value of an hour of work has grown at the same rate as GDP, right? Of course, there's a little bit currently, there's a big topic that the labor share has declined somewhat. But in the big scheme of things, the, the fact that we have do have technological progress and technology does replace workers, workers always find something to do that is higher paid and has pretty high value. So going back but i think you t- were trying to make the connection is there a connection between inflation being too low and that being a bad thing and so the way we motivated in some of the papers i send you was saying why we think undershooting of your inflation target or let's phrase it like this maybe why do you care if you undershoot your inflation target your inflation target is too If it ends up zero, who cares, right? That could be one approach. So there are two reasons, which I think two arguments you can make. One argument is the one that for some psychological factors, normal wages are downwardly rigid and you cannot cut somebody's wage. It's very difficult to cut. And so then if inflation ends up being low or even negative, the real wage of the worker is very high and you don't hire these guys back. And so we have a paper called um, The Jobless Recovery about the United States and the recovery from the Great Recession of 2008 and we say since inflation in the U.S. ended up being much lower than it was expected to be, real wages were very high and then and therefore, there was not a lot of hiring. And so we can understand why GDP maybe grew at the normal rate because of technological progress, but the employment was extremely slow to recover. Um, another that's one reason. Downward wage rigidity matters. And maybe undershooting the inflation target, therefore, is welfare decreasing. But even suppose you dismiss this and you think, and oh, I, I don't believe in this. I think it's a completely efficient labor market or labor is not so important anymore. Another thing is if you have a central bank that constantly says, I know what I'm doing, I have an inflation target of 2%, my strategy of going to 2% is to keep the normal interest rate at zero, because my belief is if I'm very easy, I have a very accommodative stance, I'm going to bring inflation up. And if you keep looking, as I said, Mr. McCorber keeps hoping something will take up, And you look and look, and for seven years of that monetary policy stance, inflation doesn't go up. You have a problem as a central bank. The market is going to say, wait a second. You keep telling us a story that you're keeping the normal interest rate at zero. That will generate inflation. That's your whole strategy. And then we ask you, show us the inflation, and it's constantly below 2% it basically could mean that the central bank loses credibility, right? And that's also not something that we want. We want that the monetary authority of a country gives us a narrative that we that the agents believe in.
0: So. Yeah, I mean, Japan is a very interesting case. So so one question would be, what happened to Japan last 25 years? Did, are, are people unhappy? Yeah, did their aggregate utility decline sufficiently badly that the country is in a in a bad shape uh if answers to those are not really then perhaps a, a zero <laughs> zero normal industry is not you know a zero inflation is not necessarily a bad thing
1: okay so let's let's first look at the good things you know sometimes people say growth in japan was slow but one one has to um qualify that a little bit average growth in real GDP per capita was the same as it was historically in any post-war developed country, but there was a level effect. Usually when you have a recession, uh, in the recovery from the recession, for a couple of years, you have much higher growth so that you come back to the old path. Suppose you have like a path like this going up for GDP, you have the recession, you go down. If you just keep growing at the same rate you historically grew, you're gonna be like parallel below it. You're gonna have not a growth effect, but a level effect. And so, this level effect is that what you can see in the data. So, the growth rate for Japan, you're totally right, average GDP growth per person is not different, but there was this one off level effect. And you can see, I mean, of course, in Japan, unemployment is, is very low, but there was a little uptick. Instead of two, on average, for about 15 years, it was between four and five. These are still very low numbers. Um, so, low inflation, yeah. So, So, I think it had actually a measurable economic consequence. And then also, the second argument is, once the central bank keep saying, I want this, I want this, and I'm telling you I'm going to bring it, and you never deliver, once the central bank completely loses credibility, it may or may not happen that people form crazy expectations about what the central bank will in the end achieve, and maybe you could have a a very high inflation or something, so I think that's also a reason not. Oh, talking about this, I mean, I think a good recent event is, I don't know if you saw that in the news, the, the ECB had a monetary policy review, and they just published the results of what they would change. And the European Central Bank had a, is an inflation targeter, and they had a little bit of complicated wording about what the inflation target is in the past. The simple wording would be it's 2%, but the wording for the, Europeans, uh, for the Euro area was below but close to 2%. And this was a little bit wishy-washy, what do you think, below but close to 2, does this mean 1.9, 1.8? And so now the European Central Bank came out and said one of the things we changed in our review, we make it simple, it's 2%, and sometimes we overshoot it, sometimes we undershoot it, but we are aiming for 2% on average. And when they came up with this, they say, we are aware of the fact that in the past, we have now undershot for 13 years, I mean, until January of this year, as you know, now inflation is pretty high in a bunch of countries, but we have basically undershot for 13 years and we don't think it's great to have on our flag this inflation target of 2% and we never meet it.
0: So would you consider, Stephanie, sort of Japan is a passive monetary policy regime. Uh, Essentially, they haven't done anything. So it is a good proxy for a passive monetary policy. And does that tell us if if sort of a passive monetary policy is good or bad?
1: Um, Observationally, it's hard to say if they are passive because, you know, passive would be that um, they see a big increase in inflation and they don't do anything. Their problem is they have not seen any inflation and so they haven't done anything. So it's like a catch 22. Um, they have tried some alternative instruments. I think all of those inflation targeters, at least in principle, think they are what is called in, in, in monetary economics, active. They pursue an active monetary policy in the sense that if the inflation was ever to rise above their target, they would tighten rates by more than one for one. That's the specific thing they mean. So they just say like, look, we are waiting and waiting for inflation to go up and it's not going up. So there's no need for us to do anything. And on the downside, since they're shooting all the time, if they, they are passive, you're totally right, they are passive. And why are they passive? Because they have that zero lower bound.
0: Yeah, so, so from a Neo Fisher perspective, um, you, you bring the economy down to that zero lower bound and you essentially get stuck in that, in that equilibrium at mm-hmm. that point, you have a passive monetary policy, you know? Yes, exactly. Is <laughs>
1: huh? so, sorry, what did you say? So at that point,
0: you have a passive monetary policy. Nothing is going to go anywhere. It's going, it's mm-hmm. going to sit there forever, like Japan. Mm-hmm. The, the question in my mind is, is that really a bad thing or not? You know, it, it, that, that's what I'm, I'm, uh, I'm debating.
1: No, I mean, suppose you were a pure monetarist, like, I guess you said you were in Chicago, in the early 90s, monetarism was still big. So what do the pure monetarists think? They think, well, we need money for transactions. And what would and so it's very inefficient to have this money, it doesn't have any positive interest rates, so there's always this opportunity cost of holding money. But if the interest rate is zero, so money and bonds are perfect substitutes, then the cost of doing transaction is zero, so that's the first best. And that is the famous result of the Friedman rule, right? Zero normal interest rate is actually the best we can be at. So that goes with your thing, why why do you are you unhappy with zero rates? And you know there is something to that view. But there's, oh, maybe a third point I should have made. People do believe there's a room for demand management by the central bank. And so suppose you're hanging out happily, passively at the zero lower bound, a zero right? And now comes a big recession. And you would like to do something to stimulate demand by lowering the real interest rate. Well, if you're already at zero, what are you going to do? You're going to say, sorry, I already spent all my bullets. Uh, I can't go any further down. And the language people use in, in central banking to describe this, and if they justify their decisions, they say, oh, we don't have any policy space if we are so low. We would, if we are hanging out instead at zero normal interest rates, we're hanging out at 4%, then we have this thing they call policy space because you could go from four down to zero. And in the short run, if everybody understands that's a short run move, that shouldn't change inflation expectations, longer run inflation expectations, so it actually lowers the real interest rate. So that's sort of the the basic dichotomy a little bit in monetary economics. In the short run, or for short run movements, we think the central bank controls the real interest rate, but for more permanent movements, they don't.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, in some sense, there's some option value to be above zero in times, right? So, when you can't really predict when bad times come, Mm -hmm. if you're already at zero, you have no optionality to Mm -hmm. counteract it. And so, because of that, you're willing to take uncertainty in normal times uh, for that sort of option value. Uh, you know, in some sense, active monetary policy increases uncertainty in the economy, um, which has, I would argue, a lot of bad effects too. Um, but then what you're saying is that it's always good to be above zero because it allows it allows you to some, some flexibility when you need it.
1: Yeah, if you have a recession that is due to a demand shock, that people are just not demanding enough, we 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 have a lot of evidence that if you could transitorily lower the real interest rate, you can stimulate the economy. And so the central, that is the bread and butter and of standard central banking, right? Is to say, there comes a fundamental demand shock, negative one, I want to um, pep up demand. How do I pep up demand? I temporarily lower the real interest rate that should stimulate inflation demand. And that should also for a household who faces a consumption saving choice, if the interest, the real rate goes down, you should tilt your expenditures towards not saving and towards spending more. And so you, you stimulate demand. That's sort of the bread and butter of the central bank. What the neo-fisherians just are arguing is that there are other type of movements that are not of this transitory type. And in particular, if you have a permanent increase or a permanent decrease in the normal interest rate, the effects are not the same as the transitory one. So, well, right. since you're from Chicago, I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe illustrate you the the approach from the Neo-Fisherian. So, well, you I don't know if you were still there in Chicago. Robert Lucas was a professor, and he won the Nobel Prize in
0: 1996.
1: Yeah, I and would, yeah. He, yeah, so he has this. I think very nice. So when you win the Nobel Prize, you have to give a speech. And so one of the sentences he wrote in there was central bankers and even some monetary economists talk knowledgeably of using high interest rates to control inflation. But I know of no evidence from even one economy linking these variables in a useful way. So basically, what is he he is saying? He was in, and then he showed some pictures, and these were all long run pictures, right? So he was talking about the long run Fisher effect, not what the neo-Fisherians talk about. The long run Fisher effect, where he says if you have really high nominal interest rates, you're not going to get low inflation in the long run; you're going to get high inflation. So I think if you now try to say the same sentence, but you change the up with the down. His observation is totally describing what happened in all these countries since they became inflation targeters and once hit the zero lower bound and have held normal interest rates at or near zero for way longer than the shock lasted. You know, countries like North Korea, uh, not North Korea, South Korea, and like many countries that are maybe emerging markets. We could reread the Robert Lucas quote as, Central bankers and even some monetary economists talk knowledgeably of using low interest rates to stimulate inflation. But I know of no evidence from even one economy linking these variables in a useful way. And I would really say that. There are at least 50 central banks in the world that have held rates at zero and they're waiting and waiting for inflation to go up.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I have to say there is something intuitively attractive to a zero nominal interest rate for 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) In a country that hasn't done too badly, you know? Uh, So, uh, but but, but I think the, the Neo Fisher argument is that don't do it if you expect inflation to rise because you're never going to get it. You're sort of stuck.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way of saying it. Don't go for zero rates for a long time hoping to reach your 2% inflation target. That's, that's, that is more what the perils of Taylor rules say. What the neo-fisherians say, if you then start tightening because you want to go back to normal, don't think that you're going to get the same negative effect in the short run as you get from a transitory tightening. You are actually going to get a very quick reinflation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a a really interesting thing to internalize. And as you say, most central banks around the world haven't done it, right? They they still have some expectations of things changing. Um, If you're OK, I want to touch on a couple of your working papers. And uh, one of them is entitled, Multiple Equilibria in Open Economies with Collateral Constraints. You say the article establishes the existence of multiple equilibria in infinite horizon, open economy models, in which the value of tradable and non-tradable endowments serves as collateral. In this environment, the economy displays self-fulfilling financial crises in which pessimistic views about the value of collateral induce agents to deleverage. Um, could you explain that a bit? <laughs>
1: Yes. So so um if I put it into plain English, you know, so um, suppose a collateral constraint means you have a limit to how much you can borrow, right? And so in that literature what the interest is is the value of collateral is not something written in stone, it's not ten cows, but it depends on macroeconomic variables and in particular it depends often on a price. So here, in that particular example that you read out, it depends on uh, the real exchange rate or the price of non-tradable goods, which is an endogenous variable. And what happens here is, suppose you become very pessimistic and you think your collateral depends a lot on non-tradable or on the real exchange rate, and people start expecting that the non-tradable goods become very cheap so your collateral is mainly non-tradable goods and so then you say oh man i'm not going to be able to borrow this is what i think is going to happen so let me not borrow so much internationally because i expect my collateral to be low in forcing me to do that so then there's a feedback loop in those economies that when you borrow very little from abroad aggregate demand domestically is very low but all these non-tradable producers have their goods already ready, willing to sell. And now demand is very low because people uh, didn't borrow and so they have no purchasing power. So, yes, the expectation is self-fulfilling. Non-tradable prices will fall a lot. And so you have this what is called self-fulfilling, deleverage crisis because people believe that the collateral value is going to be low. They take an action. They don't borrow very much. Because they don't borrow very much, demand is low, and when demand is low, then the price is low, and so that expectation is fulfilled.
0: Is it uh, is it sort of a valuation mistake? Um, there's some sort of a failure, right? So if if we can value the non-tradable endowment appropriately, then this won't happen.
1: Exactly. It, it, I mean, so actually, the official. Technical term for that type of phenomenon is, is, I think you call it valuation um, failure, which is a very good description, the the formal term is a pecuniary externality, so that you are not taking into account that with your own action you influence the price. So what is interesting about that literature, or why I think that literature took off a little bit, that is, um, let me also make a little bit of big trend comment, I told you before, there was this big change in monetary policy towards inflation targeting in the 90s. There was also a big change in how policymakers, say at the IMF and in emerging markets, looked at capital controls. I mean, since you are such a Friedman, <laughs> Friedman influenced person <laughs> from Chicago, <laughs> so the mantra, the mantra used to be: international capital should be allowed. To flow freely into India, freely out of India, freely into Colombia, freely out of Colombia, freely into all of the emerging markets, because this is great, this is efficient, capital is going kind to of flow to its most efficient location. That used to be the doctrine. And then in, after the financial crisis, the pendulum in, in policy circles changed a little bit. They thought hmm, maybe this idea of free capital mobility is not so great because we see that sometimes when countries do nothing wrong on their own, but the world capital market changes and suddenly they can't borrow anymore, they cannot roll over their loans, and then they are subject to a, a rollover crisis. They cannot renew their loans, there's no international credit and that causes massive that causes massive recessions. So I would say starting in 2008, the general idea of having capital controls became much more popular. And the technical term what people use is to say macroprudential policies. And so that particular paper tries to tell a story because of there being an externality that people don't make the right choices because they don't really internalize how their own borrowing decisions affects the value of the collateral, if you were to give them a capital control, they would you could induce them indirectly to make the right decision. So that paper provides a theoretical support for macroprudential policies. And then, because one thing is the policymakers just say, oh, we see all these flows. Another thing is, can I find a welfare-based arguments why it is desirable to go against free capital mobility.
0: So is the right way to think about this, uh, Stephanie, is um, that will reduce the volatility for us mm-hmm. inside the country. And so presumably that reduces the risk of those assets and gives you more stability in your decision-making processes. Is that the way to think about it?
1: Yes, it, it, it greatly reduces volatility, and people dislike volatility. I mean, it's it's very inefficient to have a lot of volatility.
0: Yeah. So I want to finish up with uh, another paper that you have. Uh, Does the commodity supercycle matter? Mm -hmm. You said the paper investigates empirically the role of the commodity price supercycle in explaining real activity in developed and emerging economies. The commodity price supercycle is defined as a common permanent component in real commodity prices. Um, You're arguing here that this permanent component has very little to do um, with with the issues that we see in commodity price volatility.
1: Yeah, okay. So I tell you how we went into this project because we went in with a prior that the super cycle is going to be super important. Um, So there is this empirical regularity that of many small open economies that are way too small to influence global commodity prices, if you look how their business cycle correlates with commodity with world commodity prices, it's very high. So you can get variance decompositions where you say half of the variance at business cycle frequencies of output in small country X is due to variations in global commodity prices, right? And so we try to think about, but what part of the global commodity prices is? are these, these short-run fluctuations, or is it really that if the soybean price goes down and a country is completely invested in soybeans and the whole soybeans, and, and we know that there are these very long-lasting movements in commodity prices, is that what then it gets reflected in causing long-lasting recessions? So we the, the contribution of the paper is to have a methodology to sort shocks to commodity prices into the long-lasting ones, which we call the super cycle, and then shorter ones. And we actually thought that the super cycle would be very, very important. And we, uh, at the end of the day, we don't get the answer we went into the project with. We get the answer that actually short-run fluctuations in commodity prices. I don't know, we look at a large number of emerging countries. So,
0: so it's the shocks that matter. Is, is that the way I, to think about it? The, the shocks actually have a more pronounced effect. Um, I,
1: hear, I hear a noise, but I'm not totally sure if, say again, you froze.
0: Yes, yeah, so, as so I was wondering, so, so what you're finding is that the shocks are more important than sort of the trends
1: yeah exactly the short run shocks are more important than the trend and so you know the last super cycle in commodity prices started basically when Japan when Japan when China joined WTO or when China entered the world market in a serious manner in the early 2000s and we had yeah we had thought that the fortunes of emerging markets were more tied to these permanent components, and we find no, it's actually the transitory one. There is a very pronounced supercycle. And if you just want to look at what is important to explaining world commodity prices themselves, yes, the super cycle and shocks to the supercycle is very important. But why commodity prices drive the business cycles of Ecuador or whatever, they are important, but they're not. We had gone into this project expecting this is the main reason why commodity prices are so correlated with local GDPs, but no.
0: In other words, you cannot trade the super cycle because you're going to get wiped out in the shock.
1: Mm, Explain what what you mean. I
0: mean, if if, if, uh, the super cycle is predictable, presumably you can trade on it. But then you're taking enormous amount of um, sort of discontinuous risks that you you essentially get wiped out in those discontinuities.
1: Mm, okay. <laughs> I mean the way we define the super cycle is is if there is a shock and then we ask if you now want to forecast do you think that level change is going to reverse itself or not? So it's like a permanent change. Um and is that very important? And and we don't find it. So, for example, with oil prices, you know, oil prices uh, have been—they are very volatile. But you know, as oil seems to be going slowly but surely out of the door, um, there are permanent negative shocks to oil prices. And we were wondering if that type of shock is very important for economic activity. And yes, it is important. But it's there are other commodity price shocks that are equally important. Mm.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Stephanie. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: No, thank you very much. It was really an honor to be invited to talk with you. And thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.